Hello and welcome back to No Books on a Dead Planet, the podcast where we read climate books so you don't have to. I'm Lena Norms and today we're going to be doing a little bit of a mini-sode. I'm experimenting in season two with doing these shorter, more condensed little episodes just with me, just a little chat with me in between our big episodes so I can talk about one, climate books that I haven't been able to find a buddy for to give you a little taste of the other things that I'm reading around the climate or ideas or other books that aren't necessarily about the climate. You wouldn't look at it and be like, that's a climate book. But I've read them, and I think that when we think about them from a climate perspective, they can actually shed light on things. Um, Now, I know that our last episode with Corrie was very honest, and we read the scariest book for me ever, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, which, by the way, is a book I have been scared to read for half a decade. I'm so glad that I read it and I'm not saying don't read it but if you've listened to the episode you'll know that it was an incredibly hard read and there were some incredibly hard truths in it. Now I'm really glad that me and Corey did not shy away from the ugly, rigid, moist, I'm trying to think of really other disgusting words, visceral, sticky, gloopy, hard bits of that book Um, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about the nihilism that might inspire. I definitely came away feeling hopeful i laughed a lot during that podcast but i also felt this heavy sense of like wow this is so much worse than i thought god and there's always going to be that moment in your head where you're just like is there any point is there is this just oh god (laughs) is there is there anything that i can actually do and what is my place in this what is the meaning of this information for me and I'm so glad that coincidentally I was recommended this book that I'd heard so much about well not actually do you know what I'd heard the name a lot I actually don't really know I'd I'd heard more about it than the fact that I knew that it was a holocaust memoir I was recommended this book in a completely different context I picked it up I swiftly put it down again I don't know what I'm talking about I listened to it in audio first so I didn't I didn't physically put it up I spiritually picked it up I listened to it in audio my jaw dropped to the floor I immediately started taking notes and then I bought a physical copy and I read it again so for those of you who follow me on Storygraph you'll see my erratic reading taste was yes your eyes aren't playing tricks on you I did read that book twice (laughs) consecutively so of course I had to talk to you about it today it's A Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel Um, and I'm just going to read you the blurb before we begin because I found a lot of things to talk about when it comes to the climate crisis (laughs) a lot of things to talk about and I wanted to share some of them with you but before let's just give you the context first Man's Search for Meaning tells the chilling and inspirational story of eminent psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who was imprisoned at Auschwitz and other concentration camps for three years during the Second World War. Immersed in great suffering and loss, Frankl began to wonder why some of his fellow prisoners were able not only to survive the horrifying conditions, but to grow in the process. Frankl's conclusion that the most basic human motivation is the will to meaning became the basis for his groundbreaking psychological theory, logotherapy. As Nietzsche puts it, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. In Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel outlines the principles of logotherapy and offers ways to help each one of us focus on finding the purpose in our lives. Now, there are lots of things that happened when I read that blurb. One, I thought, actually, this isn't the book that I thought it was. I was worried that there was going to be a little bit of toxic positivity in it and lots of the other layered complications that come with discussing the Holocaust. But what I actually found was quite what I was tricked into reading 
was a quite thorough but very accessible look at psychiatry and his specific brand of psychiatry that I think can really shed some light on what we're going through. Now, Victor's story is really interesting because he emphasises the fact that he isn't there to share all of his experiences of what happened to him in the concentration camps. Um, He thinks that that's been covered already and that's not really what he personally wants to share. But he uses this moment of when he was entering one of the concentration camps, he was in the middle of what he believed was his like magnum opus, like his academic work on psychiatry that he was kind of halfway through. or something and he gets the concentration camp he gets everything taken from him and he really begs with the guard to keep his manuscript because he doesn't quite yet understand the gravitas of what is about to happen to him and how strict things will be so he genuinely thinks there might be a chance that he'd be able to keep his manuscript of course the guard laughs and takes it off him and it's one of the most devastating losses in his life and while he's in the concentration camp he actually starts thinking what if i start rewriting this from scratch in my head that manuscript is lost I've mourned it what if I start rewriting this manuscript in my head and while I'm doing that what if I start actually observing firsthand what happens to the human psyche when hope is taken away so he does share glimpses and examples of things that happened to him but only to the end of trying to relate it back to his theories and as ways of demonstrating what he has learned Now, I'm just going to share with you some of my little notes on this. It's not even the extent of all of my notes on it, and it can't cover all of the really interesting aspects and the logotherapy theories that bred like a whole school of thought from this book and conferences and PhD theses and lots of other things have come from logotherapy. But one of his main drivers is that it's not necessarily peace or safety that the human brain craves, it's meaning and for meaning there must be friction of some kind and so when we think about the fact that we actually do need some kind of friction in our lives to have good mental health to have a kind of driving force for our mental well-being we can think of the climate crisis as actually i wouldn't go as far as a gift but something that is so obviously categorically black and whitely bad something that's so clearly something to fight for something that doesn't need debate there's very few people who would argue seriously without a slight tinge of sarcasm that there's no point in saving humanity from extinction like it seems pretty straightforward to me so when we're looking to be participants in some kind of friction filled meaningful task the climate crisis kind of hands that to us on a platter like it seems like the most simple debate you can be in Although sometimes watching TV panel shows, you'd be uh, forgiven for thinking otherwise. But there's definitely this feeling. I, I put out a poll on my Instagram a while ago asking like, if you could only ask one question about the climate to me, if there was only one question that you could ask somebody and they could give you a straightforward answer and like I could make a video about it and explain it, what would that question be? What's the big question mark hanging above your head? And are categorically the majority of all of the thousands of replies I got was is it going to be okay is it worth it is it going to work can we save it and that kind of all all is lost or everything is saved binary I think is what may be holding us back one because as we've talked about on the podcast before there's a scale and there are uh, people's lives on that scale at every point and getting to the top of the scale and saving everything is obviously the like a priority but if we give up because the st- scale has slightly slidden if, if we can only save 80 percent of of stuff or 70 percent of stuff then it's not worth it that becomes completely illogical but it's also this idea 
that everything was always going to be okay. When we're asking, is all lost? The assumption behind that is before that, all was won. Something that I've had to come to terms with um, when I'm thinking about the climate crisis is that I had this like subconscious belief that the world would be there forever in some capacity or the world as I knew it would be there in uh, there in some capacity um, I was running on the assumption that everything I loved would be preserved and when we learn more about history and we learn what a small portion of history we live in uh, I feel like just like the cells in our body renew every seven years we actually physically become a different person every seven years the earth also becomes very unrecognizable in a thousand years it's gonna look very different either way (laughs) like whatever we do if we do the green transition tomorrow the world will still end up looking nothing like my world in 1000 years for better or for worse do you know what i mean so either way it's letting go of that idea of the constant the idea of like the forever and i think that plays a big part for me say in um, the idea of doing artistic work because a lot of the time we do artistic work because we want to add to the canon and we want it on some level for some of us we want to preserve ourselves beyond our own lives we want to have meaning even if we're not credited for that meaning even if it's a very small contribution to an artistic field or an academic field or something like that we want to have contributed in a way that will stretch over time and now when we think about this aspect of like things don't really mean stuff if they don't last forever i have to really confront some some weird stuff in my brain think about it this way if i told you that your favorite place as a kid or like your favorite place now maybe it's a wood or a forest or a bookshop or a church or a mosque or a synagogue or a train station or a house and i said right sorry I'm just going to have to take this option off the table. That, your favourite place, not going to be there forever. It is going to be destroyed. I can guarantee that. Uh, That option is off the table to save it. I'm sorry. That is just the way it is. However, you do have two options that I need you to make a choice about. Would you like me to burn that thing to the ground today? Like, because you know it's not going to last forever, I I could just get rid of it now. That, That sounds easy. Or we can keep it for another 100 years it will last for the rest of your lifetime and probably another generation will be able to have it as well like what what would you like just give me a ballpark answer what would you preserve exactly we also don't marry people with the expectation that they're going to live as long as us that doesn't feel like a doable promise it may be something we fantasize about or something that we hope for but it's not something that's in that inherent contract we don't or i hope we don't avoid making friends or connections or really deep emotional pacts with people from other generations who are older than us because we know that they one day will die and that will be hard generally in the rest of our personal lives we don't disengage with something because we know that it has a finite time to exist and it must be the same with the planet when i think about the news you might get about say a grandparent dying for example your response wouldn't be to never see them again and just say okay well that's good to know i'm just gonna like delete their number they're already dead to me you'd probably make the most of the time that you had with them you'd immediately get on a bus or get in a car and go and see them you might even take some time off work to be with them in their final days and really appreciate them and ask them everything that you wanted to know before they go and i wonder what would happen if we started feeling that on a bigger scale the nature of depression and anxiety and this new iteration of it eco-anxiety often keeps us 
indoors. It's saying shut it all out, pull away, disengage. But that's kind of the opposite of what's logical. No, we need to get out there. Viktor Frankl says, thus, it can be seen that the mental health is based on a certain degree of tension, the tension between what one has already achieved and what one still ought to accomplish, or the gap between what one is and what one should become. And then he goes on to say, what man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task so when we fantasize about a world where there isn't a climate crisis and nothing's going on and there's peace everywhere we have to question how we would feel in that situation what would be our purpose and the realization that there is a chance for a certain kind of purpose and drive and almost may may i dare say happiness or at least pride in what we're doing when we start engaging like that actually is the doorway through like what if the climate crisis on an individual level as as well as a community level is the making of us what if that's the call in the book and his observations uh, Victor talks a lot about encountering people who give up in the camps and the kind of trying to work out the differences between the kinds of people who give up while they're in there and give up hope completely and then their own lives sometimes or at least attempt to and the people who manage somehow to preserve their mental health enough to get through the camps and for some of them to live And he says it's obviously not to do with the worth of the person or their character or any kind of judgment call like that in in that way he stays very neutral and loving but he does observe he thinks that there are three types of meaning that people can find in their lives and he relates them to the ways people find mentally to preserve themselves um during one the worst time in their lives the, the most trying circumstances so he either says it's a work like something that you know in yourself needs to be finished for him it was this book or this theory um but it could have been something else a piece of literature a skill that needs to be mastered i'm sure you can apply that to some of your own lives there's lots of different ways you can go with that but a work that needs to be finished an experience so a lot of the time we find experiences from people so you can either experience a person or have an experience to fantasize about having an experience that you think is really valuable or enjoyable again whether that's just a very important meal to you or to be reunited with somebody to find meaning in the experience of another and the third meaning is simply learning how to suffer the pride and the call that comes from knowing that bearing something is your task that's what's on the table for you is that you have been faced with this thing and to be able to bear it you must dig deep and find resources in yourself Uh, and that brings meaning the idea that you can rise yourself up to meet something that's incredibly hard can also bring meaning in itself he says every age has its own collective neurosis and every age needs its own psychotherapy to cope with it you won't even you don't even know yet victor you don't even know yet i wish i could reach into the past and be like victor you were so anyway the essential vacuum with which the mass neurosis of the present can be described as a private and personal form of nihilism for nihilism can be defined as the contention that being has no meaning as for psychotherapy however it will never be able to cope with this state of affairs on a mass scale if it does not keep itself free from the impact and influence of the contemporary trends of nihilistic philosophy otherwise it represents a symptom of the mass neurosis rather than its possible cure psychotherapy would not only reflect a nihilistic philosophy but also even though unwillingly and unwittingly transmit to the patient what is actually a caricature rather than a true picture of a man First of all, there is a danger inherent in the teaching of man's nothing butness. 
the theory that man is nothing but the result of biological, psychological and sociological conditions, or the product of hereditary and environment. Such a view of man makes a neurotic believe that what he is prone to believe anyway, namely that he is a pawn and a victim of outer influences and inner circumstances. This neurotic fatalism is fostered and strengthened by psychotherapy which denies that man is free. And this is the key bit, this is the bit I really underlined. To be sure, a human being is a finite thing and his freedom is restricted. It is not freedom from conditions, but it is freedom to take a stand toward the conditions. Man does not simply exist, but always decides what his existence will be, what he will become in the next moment. So when I think about that in the context of No Books on Dead Planet, I have to think about what our freedoms can be within the restrictions that we read about. It made me realise that the climate crisis doesn't mean that our future was free before the fossil fuel industry started kicking up its shit and now it's completely captured and like ungovernable and something that will just happen to us. Freedom has always been restrictive. There's always part of our lives that will be dictated by outer forces, governments, other people's decisions. That was always going to be our future anyway. However much democracy we achieve, there is always going to be restrictions around what our lives are like. They are always going to be dependent on other people and other forces and nature, etc. But where we can find meaning is in our choice on how we respond to that. What we preserve of our own personhood and our opinions of ourselves and what we honour about the stuff that is still around right now and can be enjoyed at least for another hundred years. The things that might not be there forever, whether that's just your favourite bookshop or your favourite forest or literally all of humanity. But this idea that things can still have value and meaning for you and you're allowed to be happy and excited about them in the present and that doesn't take away their meaning. For me, there's something comforting about knowing that the recipe isn't different for my future. Like that it's still like this might be a different ratio of freedom to restriction, but there was always going to be a recipe there that things are different and they're also different from different people around the world like in the global south i think they have less pearl clutching about like oh my god will the world end because there's a lot of places in which that is already happening uh, and the fact that i can sit here and know that my world hasn't ended and yet i feel despair anyway feels feels like a weird response but then again we can't try and con- command our own responses um this idea of the impossibility of optimism comes up uh, in the book as well He talks about this idea of hyper-intention or forcing happiness that Western society has. He uses the example of like, you can't force somebody to laugh. There has to be a stimulus there. We have to find the things that make us laugh. We have to find the things that give us optimism. We can't command it of people or demand it of people. He talks about how when you watch a film, you don't necessarily get the meaning of the film or understand it until you reach the end of the film. And in the same way, the kind of arrogance of believing that we will understand the future or we can always already decide the ending before experiencing it doesn't make sense. He says, doesn't the final meaning of life too reveal itself, if at all, only at the end on the verge of death? So this idea of feeling meaningless at the beginning of a plot, knowing that you're part of a narrative arc is a strange one. No. He also says, more specifically, it boils down to becoming aware of a possibility against the backdrop of reality or to become aware of what can be done about a given situation. So this idea of not 
denying reality but becoming aware of the possibility within it and of course there are loads of things to be hopeful about as well as unhopeful and he does say when it comes to suffering the priority stays with creatively changing the situation that causes us to suffer but of course after that if that becomes undeniably like exhaustible like that's that those possibilities have been taken off the table we can find meaning in knowing how to die knowing how to suffer and deciding on the way we do that and in what manner and with what attitude it brings to mind a film that i just watched on netflix that just came out called love at first sight rubbish title for a film truly rubbish (laughs) almost didn't watch it apart from one of my best friends told me i had to and i did and it was wonderful and part of the plot point is that um there's a boy who talks to a new person he's met and he says like you know she basically realizes over the plot of the film that he is on the way to a memorial and she tries to find him in this memorial because she wants to be there for him and she turns up at the memorial in the church and she looks for him and she knows that he's he's lost his mom so she's it's a memorial for his mom i've got to find his mom she goes and finds tries to find him can't and then she uh, asks this woman and this woman is like oh no but he's my son like I'll, I'll find him for you and she she turns white and is like i thought this was your memorial <laughs> and she says it is my memorial and she looks around and everybody because this woman uh, basically used to be really into being a thespian and loads of amdram and she loved shakespeare this um whole hall has been turned into this this palace of color and ribbons and and um silks and everybody is dressed as different shakespearean characters and it's all lit by candlelight and she realizes that it's a living wake she has decided to have the wake before she's died because she was planning her funeral and she thought it sounded like so much fun and so great and she she wanted to be there (laughs) she wanted to have it before she died and it's that kind of idea of like there are determining factors about how we face this and with what humor and with what energy levels and i personally plan on facing doom with a lot of glitter and gumption and confetti because I think in a very serious note I think that might be the only way to honor all the people that have come before us and everything that's been built I think almost on some level it seems sad to the point of maybe disrespect to not fight for what we have and not give up on what we have not by giving up on it just by not fighting for it but also by not interacting with it and enjoying it and being present with it while it's here he also talks a little bit I think of what we might discuss as like capitalist rhetoric around workloads and being useful he talks about this idea of perceived usefulness this toxic idea that man is only good if he is useful and he talks about it in the context of somebody being injured or you know being in a state of disrepair mentally or physically after having gone through all of the different experiences people went through during world war ii but i also take that to to mean kind of our idea of productivity when it comes to capitalism am i I demanding of myself the perfect product to my activism and to my talk and to whatever i'm trying to do about the climate crisis because i don't think i'm going to get the perfect result i myself feel like i as a worker have failed and if i don't produce the perfect future given the circumstances that i have then i myself am redundant as a worker that was a note i took for myself and then had to like take a little breath and maybe go and get a gin because geez it really made me think about this idea of learned meaninglessness that he talks about in the book that we don't naturally have a sense of sense of meaninglessness or uh, nihilism it's something that we learn and i 
I'm starting to think that the longer I think about this and read about it and start trying to engage with it, that I kind of refuse to turn up to that lesson. I'll be bunking. I'll be skiving off. Count me out. I will not be on school premises for that lesson. I will probably go to the corner shop and get some sweets and talk to a cute boy. <laughs> I don't want I don't want that. And um, I apologies for laughing, but I also learned to laugh in this book, which sounds very weird. <laughs> given the premise but he actually has a section about humor in the in the concentration camps and its use within like the different inmates and their capacity to mentally survive and preserve themselves he talks about taking the wind out of the sails of anxiety and he says such a procedure must make use of the specific human capacity for self-detachment inherent in a sense of humor and then he quotes um a book called the individual and his religion the neurotic who learns to laugh at himself may be on his way to self-management perhaps even to cure so on that note i must end this very silly mini-sode it was shorter than a normal episode maybe longer than I planned but I had to talk to you a little bit about this wonderful book because I think that if you're struggling to find those kinds of thoughts or those kind of bigger picture things you might be struggling with in the climate books that we're talking about or maybe that you've tried to read I have to emphasize that those ideas aren't new and they do exist in other books and I think reading widely or if you're struggling to read a climate book putting it down and reading something else that's more about generally finding purpose and finding meaning like this book but there are many others can be really beneficial and can either get you back to reading the climate book once you've dealt with all those feelings about like the idea that you maybe have been thinking that uh, your life is only meaning meaningful if it's permanent or if you're remembered or if the things around you survive forever once you've dealt with those maybe you can come back to the climate book or you don't need to come back to the climate book you just get on with whatever you think is your place in the climate movement and do you know what i mean the only point in reading these books is to get us out there and to get us doing stuff so either the books serve that purpose or they don't so i can't believe i have a books podcast where i'm encouraging you to not read the book but here we are it's a new dawn it's a new day for everybody question everything (laughs) nothing is permanent not even my love of books it would seem thank you so much for listening to this episode i really really appreciate you listening to me ramble on if you enjoyed it please do leave a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or tell a friend about it we'd love that i'm on instagram at lena norms if you want to tell me more about how you feel about the podcast or any feedback you have this month we are reading it's not that radical by michaela loach um so do tune in at the end of the month to listen to that episode we've got shaba on the podcast and it was an absolute hoot to record with her so definitely stay tuned for that if you've supported the podcast by word of mouth or spiritually just by wishing us well and leaving us a review uh, and you still want to do more you can financially support the podcast on the gumption club patreon page which i'll link in the show notes or you can buy a positive panic patch which are available at linanorms.com shop which are scout style iron or sew on patches where you can earn little rewards for your little actions um which is a big motivator for me i literally only do things for gold stars stickers and little ribbons <laughs> because that's how my brain still works um so if you'd like to trick yourself into doing some climate actions they're available for you too run from nihilism go and grab some sweeties and a good book and i'll I'll speak to you in our next episode. Bye.